Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Your death will be a tale to frighten children. Ooh. To make lovers cling closer in their rapture. Ooh. Come with me and be immortal. I'm in a trance because hypnotism was used in preparation for shots. Are you sure? I think Candyman was not <laughs> aiming for you, Holden. I, I think he was maybe. Probably going after somebody else. If a daddy that of that <laughs> status wanted me to go I'd probably especially like you were saying Jackie right now I'd be I'd just take it I'd be like all right that's just, just please not that bad. come with me and be immortal yes please I think that sounds awesome and yes we are talking about how awesome Candyman is today we are going to get into the ins and outs of where it came from how it came to be all of the respect that went into the making of this movie Candyman is one of my favorite movies of all time. Y'all, Candyman rules. Let me just throw out the synopsis really quick and get out of the way so we can get to the gush. A 1982 American slasher film that sparked a franchise written and directed by Bernard Rose and starring Virginia Madsen, Tony Todd, who fucking is so cool, Xander Berkeley, Cassie Lemons, and Vanessa Williams. It is based on a short story titled The Forbidden by Clive Barker and follows a Chicago graduate student who is completing a thesis on the urban legends and folklore which led her to the legend of the Candyman, the ghost of an artist and son of a slave who was murdered in the late 19th century for his relationship with a white painter's daughter. This movie holds up so well. In fact, I think so hard. I originally watched it back when I wasn't that into horror films and when that type of setting was even kind of like hard for me to even deal with in my dumb privileged ass fucking background. And like since moving to New York, being a little more steeped in, in, in that sort of culture and things and just like rewatching this just as now a full fledged horror fan, man, what a great, great horror movie. Well, you know, it's not really even a traditional horror movie when you go back and look at it. It's, it's sure. like a very, very gory Tragedy, yeah, like well, romance. That's what, even movie. Clive Barker said that he wrote it as a dark romance. Yeah, oh wow, that is what the intention is. That 
Candyman to him is a romantic figure and not a villain. So if you look at it from that aspect as well, uh, so I got it while we were, I was, you know, obviously watching it again for this. And I was talking with Jeff about it. I was like, this is what most women want. You know, most women want to be seduced and taken away. And he's like, I don't think that's true. <laughs> I think that might just be you. But I, maybe I do. You know, I want to be seduced. Well, Tony Todd said himself that he was looking for his own version of Phantom of the Opera. And that is what this character yes. is. I love yes. that. I love that description. And he is so good. I couldn't imagine anyone else doing this movie. Definitely not fucking Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy. <laughs> I love I love Eddie Murphy, but I could not picture him in this character. It, like he doesn't even have the stature. Like the fact yeah. that Tony Todd is so um Imposing. He, he takes up so much of the frame. Yeah. He's 6'5. Yeah. He is actually 6'5. That's part of the reason why. So originally, they did see Eddie Murphy in this role. And number one, he wanted way too much money. And number two, he was 5'9 and just not physically intimidating enough. Yeah. For sure. I mean, that, that you this character is like a looming character, it does hold weight on screen. And so I think Eddie Murphy just wouldn't have been able to sell that as much not mm-hmm. that he could not that he's not a very talented man oh yeah I, I just think that it would have been a very different movie and Tony Todd who is such an acclaimed actor and he he is a he is a trained performer mm-hmm. prolific actor too over a mm-hmm. hundred films it's insane yeah, outside insane. of just his television work and Broadway work and and off-Broadway work I mean it's really really amazing and he knew when he was brought on to do Candyman that when he, when he read the script, he even was talking about how it was unlike any especially horror movie he had ever read for him to be in. And that he wanted to do it in as it, like he acts his ass off in this movie. He's terrifying in this movie and also looks great as well. <laughs> Go ahead. Take me away. I want right? to be immortal. Right? Um, yes, please. Okay, I guess uh, you can be mad. I like your hook. Uh, so it's many really bees. cold to get to Oh my god, skin. your hook's like so big. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> can I touch it? Oh, all right, ladies, You put please, the bees in my mouth jacket. Get a towel, come on. Oh my on. god, I, you love animals? You like bees? Me <laughs> too, oh my god. I like bees. Um, <laughs> I, like I will bees. say too, very similar, we just did the crap for pop history. If you're listening to this out of order, very similar through line of being surprised by like, oh, this was written and directed by white guys. Okay, but at least, again, kind of like how the craft they brought in, the Wiccan expert, you know, it does seem like our director Bernard Rose did take lengths to make sure that they were not uh, creating a bunch of racist tropes right. and uh, caricatures and things like that. And that was great. And I think it was a surprise, much like the craft was a surprise, only in the sense that you're like, oh, wow, I didn't feel like they were being exploitative or that any any of this was, again, caricatures or, or uh, bad examples in a film. It sounds as though he really... He didn't go into this going, I'm let's make something for our black audience. Like it sounds right. like he he was actually affected by the, what was happening in the real world in Chicago and really wanted to portray a story inside of that world that wasn't a cliche. You know, which I can see people being 
mad that it wasn't a person of color doing it, but I, I do think he came from a good place at least. For sure. Well, and that's what hopefully with the reboot with Jordan Peele, yeah. that's exactly what's going to be happening. And I I can't even believe how excited, so excited I am for, that. for yeah, the be. Jordan Peele release of the new Candyman. But they did go to great lengths because really what Bernard Rose wanted to do with Candyman is to shine a light on the issues of the fact that so Many and, obvi- and obviously, still to this fucking day, unfortunately, there's so many, especially when it comes to murders in the projects, things like like crimes that happen in lower class neighborhoods where police just close a blind eye to it. And that is something that is really the light is shown on because Candyman is also based on which we will get to real life murders that were happening in the mm-hmm. projects that we're affecting people that nobody was doing anything about. Yeah. And on top on top of that, specifically with Cabrini Green, and it's something that I've definitely experienced, like living in parts of Brooklyn and things like that, where Cabrini Green also just happens to be located in like the middle of surrounding upper class yuppie ass neighborhoods. I mean, yeah, that's a, lots of New York is like that. Lots of New York is that yeah. where your one block is housing projects and, and very low income. And then the next block is literally some ridiculous like high rise. $5,000 a month apartment. Yeah. And, and it's all smashed up against each other. And I think that is one of the more interesting parts of Kenny Man, how she can see this terrifying location with this uh, monster living within it from her dope her, high rise. Her like ivory tower. Her yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and I think that that is one of the more fascinating notes that this speaks towards that you can only get in a big city like Chicago or like New York where they can't just push everyone out to the outskirts. You know right. what I mean? Everybody, that has, was, everybody coexists in the same space and it, yeah. like, what that does to people psychologically and everything. I love uh, it. Did you guys see this as kids? Oh, yeah. Sort of. Again, I, I, I came to horror in college, so I believe I do have a recollection of seeing this movie. I think I've told this story before, but I'm pretty sure it was one of the films that were a part of. My mom had this co-worker that she uh, had it literally had so many VHS tapes, had such a big movie collection that she would rent them out. And like, so my mom, I filled nice. out at the beginning, <laughs> That's great. at the beginning of the summer, I filled out a checklist of like movies I was interested in. And it was pages and pages of movies. And then based on that, she would send me ones I selected and then ones that she thought I would dig based on my selection. Oh, that's, that's awesome. My mom would show up once a week with a giant grocery bag full of VHSs, and I saw Do the Right Thing That Way. Holy I shit. saw uh, fucking just everything, like Clerks and like all those kind. You know what I mean? Just like all these different, it was just this big mind blower. And I believe Candyman was in there, but I don't even know if I finished it because I just was not the horror fan that I became. It, well, yeah. it, I was similar to, for me, I, I was always fascinated by scary stuff and horror stuff, but I was terrified of it. So I yeah. like to like, I like to peek at it, but I would always ultimately want to escape. And I remember being at a slumber party at about, I don't know, 10, 11, where the mom got that movie for the party. Like she was the, <laughs> my friend was allowed to watch it for the sleepover. And I, I left the room like I and That's that cool was to mom. me. <laughs> I, I'm Yeah. Single mom. You know, she's single young mom trying to make a make it OK for her kids and everything. But I let them I watch mean, horror movies. That's great. Perfectly fine. If your kid can handle it, have that. I, I wanted so badly to watch it, but I was too scared. And so 
like embarrassed myself essentially by kind of like creeping out of the room and sitting with their mom. <laughs> it also oh, has that vibe that of like Silence of the Lambs. It and does. Other yeah. movies of that, like even just the tone of it, the look of it is disturbing, I think, especially yeah. to a child who hasn't like been in dilapidated apartment buildings and seen that it's not cartoonish it's like, not it's cartoon. like no. a freddy it's not like a you yeah. can almost you, you can't it's harder to separate yourself from it when it's kind of grounded in reality like that yeah and yeah. in a scary reality that we don't want to acknowledge when we didn't live in that sort of situation that you're like god people really live like this and people do fucking live like that and at yeah. the same time it's not all scary people who live like that. It's actually a lot of decent, hardworking people. And I think that the film, again, does a great job to acknowledge that and actually even literally state it in the film. Like, you think everybody who lives here is like a bunch of criminals and like dirtbags? I mean, yeah, we grew up in Queens. So like, so yeah, I mean, we grew up next to the project. So it wasn't like, I mean, this was our, this was our life as well and it's like as an anxious kid I loved watching horror movies because I think that it gave me something that was in my brain fake to be scared of instead of all I was a very anxious child so I think that I found solace in horror movies because then oh I could be scared of a boogeyman instead of I was from a young age very scared of being murdered. I thought that that was I thought it was just going to happen to me on the street, but that's because we were raised of like, well, you can't ride a bike to school because kids in my neighborhood would get killed for riding their bike to school so that someone would steal their bike. And that was the reality we were raised in. So watching Candyman, honestly really between Candyman and it, it made me horrified of the bathroom i was so scared of the bathroom growing up that like talk about when people would creep past the projects no 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 i just would i always would go in i would sneak under the the bathroom mirror and i'd open it because i was so scared of closing it and having something behind me so i'd go into the bathroom open up the mirror so i couldn't see anything behind me because i'd rather not know and then open up the shower curtain so i could immediately see in there i would yeah. look into the pipes of the bathroom in the sink and in the tub to make sure that i didn't see like an eyeball or anyone coming back and then of course you think the other side of it. People are like, oh, maybe you shouldn't have been watching those movies so young. But <laughs> I think it made me vigilant. Right. And um, you know what? I'm still standing, baby. Did, you, did yeah. you have a plan for if there was an eyeball in the drain? Yeah, what are you going to do with the eyeball in the sink? I mean, probably stab it. I don't know. I had a lot of scissors around. <laughs> but if it was just some horny guy, then you got a murder on your hands. You know yeah. what I mean? And then, it, and, then we'll, and then I'll end up like Virginia Madsen. And I think that this is also, I remember as a kid, realizing for the first time, because I know that it happened in other movies, but I remember it viscerally of, I always used to think about, well, on the outside, like Freddy Krueger, these people are just getting murdered. Someone's doing the murdering. I love that this movie addresses the idea that maybe it's just a mentally unfit human being that is killing everyone and blaming the Candyman on it. And and Candyman is a physical manifestation of urban legend. Isn't that cool as shit? Yeah, I love that. And that's a lot of what the short story centers around. Yes! That was was really fascinating to read because I hadn't ever read the the short story before this episode. And I didn't realize until about 
a quarter of the way in that it was taking place in England with like Liverpool with a completely different set of circumstances until there they were the one woman in the story was saying I was visiting me mum and I was like what <laughs> Who's, what the hell are you talking about what? this is Chicago <laughs> This doesn't seem accurate. And then I realized, oh, they're using a bunch of British slang. So this yeah. is a different place. And it's actually not based on on race issues. In the More of a class, no, class issue. issue. And let's, actually, yeah. let's get into it. Let's, let's dive in. Um, first, let's talk about Clive Barker before we get to the forbidden, just very briefly. Uh, Clive Barker, English playwright, novelist, film director, and visual artist. He was born in Liverpool. His mother was a painter. I feel like we could do an episode on Clive at some point. I um, would love Especially yes, because he, he talks about very openly that, like, he didn't really have that crazy of a childhood. And everyone asked him, like, oh, what are all of your crazy ideas based on? He's like, I don't feel that my taste was shaped by anything in particular that happened in my childhood. I remember strange things from my childhood, but there were no traumas. It would be wonderful if I could produce something gross from my past. But my pets lived to ripe old ages. <laughs> None of my relatives died in particularly odd circumstances. The most dramatic thing was the sheer banality of growing up in a town that was not of great interest to me. See, I do have one factoid <laughs> that would say otherwise, so I hope it is yes. a true fact, is that at three years old, he saw the French skydiver Leo Valentin fall to his death during an air show performance, which uh, did have an effect on his maybe possibly his it's, later This work. is very Lynchian in, in the backstory, where David Lynch was also very middle America, kind of bland, except for the yes. one weird woman he saw walk out of the woods nude. yes. Yes, um, as a child, <laughs> you know, sometimes you just get, you just need the one thing. Yep, you need the one. So he started out in theater while going to school and started writing his own plays and later co-founded the avant-garde theatrical troupe called The Dog Company in 1978. And there he... Yeah, it sounds like somewhere where I'd work. <laughs> All right, no one let him yeah, out, Yeah, welcome to The Dog Company. No one let them out. Uh, but he, but there, there he connected with many long-term collaborators, such as Doug Bradley, who went on to play Pinhead in the Hellraiser series, as well as Peter Atkins, the writer of the Hellraiser sequels. See, um, this is why I really want to get into do an actual episode on Clyde sure. Parker because he's another one of these dudes that works with a lot of the same people. He likes, like he he's like found the creators he enjoys working with, the people that respect his work, like Bernard Rose does, and that he like has such a cool infrastructure of making weird. Higher brow, well, at times. <laughs> yeah, at times. It's a good addendum. He still did Hellraiser 2 and 3. You well, know, yeah. like this. But, you know, they're they're unique and they had yes. a new interesting voice to them. And um, I think we were talking about earlier, Jackie, as far as we know, he was the first openly queer, like mainstream horror person. We could be wrong and you guys can correct us, but um, he did bring that that new uh, fresh vibe to the horror world. Well, and that's what was so cool is that he was, he came out in 96, which is obviously after Hellraiser and Candyman, but he was working with like a lot of underground queer bookstores and he was going and doing lectures and reading his stories. And he, he's, a, he's a really, he's really big in the queer community and reaching out and including it, which is why Hellraiser, which we have to do Hellraiser at some point, yes. is a quintessential queer horror movie, which is cool as shit. And then I started reading a bunch about that and I was like, man, Jackie, 
Candyman. Candy focus. <laughs> I know. It's hard not to go down that path, but I was so happy that I ended up picking up um, his uh, Books of Blood. Because so good. I did not realize how good of a writer he is. He, he after he um, uh, after a while of writing plays and things, he ends up writing uh, what I just mentioned, the Books of Blood, which are his short story collections. They're all horror short stories and they're phenomenal. And the one that Candyman is based on is called The Forbidden. And it's awesome. It appears in did volume you ever, five. Did you ever uh, get into him in theater school, though? You never did any of Clive Barker's plays or anything you like know, that? You know, it's possible. I just don't remember. What, what Do you remember his like most more famous plays? I mean, I was obsessed with Sacrament, but okay. there's also, there. Uh, I believe it was called Incarnations. That was another book of plays that he did. He did a lot of... I mean, just imagine this kind of writing. Yeah. But in a play, it's very foreboding. It's not all horror necessarily, but they're very, they're like, it's more like fantasy horror journey. And I believe he also wrote a couple kids safe, like scary books, like that were sort of dark fantasy as well. I think I read at least one of them. I've been like really enjoying that level of horror lately. Maybe it's because like I'm so scared of the world right now. But I just right this this month for this Halloween month for me has been more like jump details to yeah, terrify sure. your very bones. Like nothing is scary. Oh, also, Sacrament is a book. I was I was wrong. Sacrament okay. is a book that. But it is really good, though. I, I I definitely would love to check his more of his stuff out. And I will say, if you are curious about the Forbidden, it exists in Volume Five of the Books of Blood, which yeah. is easy to get. And uh, yeah, and and also just touching on the the queer culture part, um, it's even notable even in, when you're just reading. He casually has gay characters in the stories that are not cartoonish, and they're not the gay characters. They just happen. They're like they brush by being gay in the story and then move along. And it's like that wasn't necessarily a thing that existed at the time because. If it was a gay character, they were the gayest character. Right. You know? Which which I think also speaks towards where we get to with Candyman later, where it's like, yes, it is a black uh, monster. You know what I mean? But it's not like a caricature of an African-American man as the killer. It's just yeah. like he just is black. That's not like his whole identity. Well, and that's why I actually was very surprised in doing like the fact that they had to go to the NAACP and have and like bring the script to to them because if you look at it also Bernadette is a black character the the cop is a black character there are other black characters so it's like I think that it also does touch on it really brings out the class issue yeah. mm-hmm. way harder in the movie that that and that was the intention of Clive Barker originally yeah but it's also really cool because Clive Barker is the executive producer of Candyman so he is in it he knows what's going on and signed off and Bernard Rose worked with him to keep yeah. his vision well, for yeah. the movie. It's also, it's interesting that he, um, you basically took every element of that short story and yeah. put spots of it in the movie. Even if he, it's like the characters are in it. Even if the characters are changed, every little element of that story is in there at different points. Which is That's even what cool. Bernard Rose said about it. He's like, it's so much better to adapt a short story because you get to add to it rather than take away from it yeah. as you have to do with a novel. Hell yeah. And it's yeah. so I, smart. I, I agree with that totally. Uh, so so the forbidden set in Liverpool centers around the segregation of the and culture of poor urban areas there. It follows a university student named Helen doing a thesis on graffiti and selects a rundown estate for her to study. 
The so graffiti. right there is the first difference. Yeah, she's doing. Would make so make so much sense. So, um, Jeff used to be he used to tag and he did a lot of um, graffiti artwork, right? And so in looking at what it, a hoodlum. <laughs> yeah, he was a bit of a hoodlum. Yeah, I got myself a bad boy that wow. was good. <laughs> and he was taught like I never thought about that either. He was like, it's so cool because it looks like they got real graffiti artists to do the work. Mm. That it's not just Hollywood graffiti that they like would a set deck, just, just like. And I was yeah. trying to find, yeah, I was trying to find like the graffiti artists that worked on it, and I couldn't find any names for it. But uh, he was like showing the different things that were incorporated to know that that is what taggers do instead of just what. Uh, what a set deck person would do it's as like well. Kyle was here. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, so it's so they incorporated that, the fact that she was doing her thesis on graffiti artwork in the short story was then easily transcribed for the movie by doing that. And that's such a cool way to, to reference the short story by not being like, but yeah, she was, but now she's not. And mm -hmm. you know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> so, of course, uh, this graffiti she discovers makes reference to an urban legend, the Candyman, which she ends, uh, ends up connecting to recent murders and mutilations in the neighborhood. She eventually encounters the Candyman himself and becomes his latest victim. The Candyman scene here is described as having waxy, jaundiced skin, rough, uh, rouged cheeks, blue lips, eyes like rubies, and a patchwork coat. So that is obviously a big difference. Yeah, that's a big difference. But he did have the hook hand, right? Yes. And he was yeah, he also did have the hook hand. and he was also an enchanter. He was still an entrancing yes. character that Dealey character was sort of hypnotized by and bees and the bees and the bees. So that's so in the short story, obviously some of the differences it was set in Liverpool, but as we will talk about uh, fairly soon, they had had issues with that due to Hellraiser that they had to redub. Such so a weird story, just, which we'll get into. Yes. They just originally just, so they just immediately moved it to America. So things that they incorporated in the movie that also weren't in the short story. Lay you didn't have it. to say his name five mm -hmm. times. You know, that was part of like, again, adding in other urban legends to, for him to be just a manifestation of folklore. Yeah. And in the short story, there's no backstory for the right. Candyman. And, that was a big part of since Bernard Rose wanted to elevate it to make a social commentary about the projects, obviously turning him into almost a hero for the community to represent the black people that lived in the projects is why he wanted to change the character and also fleshing out the backstory to give him more of, you know, obviously a reason of why he's doing the things that he's yeah, doing. Yeah, and that I think one of the joys of a short story is the ability to just leave things a little bit more mysterious and leave your brain to work out some of the stuff. So like in the short story, you're not really told anything about this character. It's just this, it's like this enigma, this like manifestation of suffering yeah. from this community. And in the longer version, you get to hear, oh, this is like a guy who had a whole life before and, and this is why he's this right. way. And um, I, I think they both really work. I think they they managed to like turn it into this storyline really well. Oh, yeah. One thing I read was that Tony Todd actually created that backstory. Yeah. 
that he he worked with them He's in so creating. Cool. But a lot more <laughs> oh, yeah. of the backstory, like the further backstory into it, is actually what he added into, I believe, Hellraiser 2. Like the, the one that is about more of his backstory, he added more into the lore that he had created for himself while making the first one. You mean Candyman 2? Yes. Oh, yeah. Can Man 2. We got to do a Hellraiser. Never mind. We're pulling an audible. Hellraiser episode starts now. Uh, Hellraiser. It was directed. I don't know what year. I'm pulling up the Wikipedia. It's my nightmare. um, I don't have the research. No, please, God, (laughs) no. But, Jackie, you do have research on the things that were actually in both the short story and the film, and I'd love for you to give us those now because there were so many things. It's kind of insane. Oh, yeah. There's so so much, but I'm actually not even done with the differences yet because... So in the short story, they also don't deal with Helen's sanity as well, like they do. Yeah, in the that's movie. true. Yeah, and this line was just so interesting to me. It said, "It's easy to see it as her punishment, both in story terms for doubting Candyman's existence." And in a moral sense, for daring to step outside of her ivory tower community into the literal slums. So and that is part of so all of that like mental warfare that was against her was a way to punish her from deigning to come down from her upper middle class life down into the projects. And again, it furthers the urban legend. And another thing that was very surprising to me is that they changed the ending of the short story for the movie as well. So both of them end in the bonfire, but... In the in the short story, spoilers. Helen is goaded. <laughs> yes, spoilers, spoilers. Helen is goaded into being trapped in the bonfire in a wicker man style sacrifice because Anne Marie, who is the woman who is the mother of the child, put her baby's corpse in the fire, knowing Helen would try to retrieve it. As we know, because now we know what the, what's going to happen with the reboot. Obviously, in the movie, the baby lives, and so that it can further the idea and further the story down the line, which makes a lot more sense movie-wise. I can't believe the studio shied away from all those dead baby scenes in the short you story. No, <laughs> I get it. But then it turns her into a martyr. Yeah. And there, and like that is where the difference she lies. She becomes of like, legend, yeah. And she becomes the legend. And, and in saving the kid immediately becomes something to fear, but also respect in the same way the community did with Candyman. My favorite part of the short story, and again, spoiler, you might want to skip this part if you want to read the book, but um, <laughs> I love at the very end of that short story was her her shitty husband's trying to find her and she sees him inside when she's burning alive and she's like, I want him to see me. Not so he can save me, but so he can be haunted by this forever. Yeah, <laughs> yes. this, so this is something scary. Yeah, fuck that guy. Price drop, time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus, get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. 
Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Also, I love that they totally have the same Trevor. All the names are like the mm-hmm. same, and I know you're going to get into that, but but uh, that Trevor's this cheating, shitty husband is in both, uh, which I thought was interesting, like these very specific notes that are in both. Down to what's so cool is when you're reading the story, you can see the shots in the movie. Yeah, right? From totally. the story. The opening of the short story even has the line of how it's going over the town from a bird's eye mm-hmm. view. Because Clive Barker writes in a way that is visually stimulating yeah. as well as environmentally scary. Yes. And that's why it's so not easy, but interesting to change his stories into a different medium because there's so much to play with. It's such an open-ended world, which is why when Bernard Rose went to him was like, I really want to turn the forbidden into a movie. He's like, cool. Yeah, have it. Which is awesome, sir. And a flawless Clive Barker impersonation. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, any other similarities and things before we move on to Mr. Bernard Rose? Um, not right now. No, I'm good. Okay, wow. Playing coy. I like this. Yeah, I'm jacket. playing coy. A bit of a. Uh, I read a lot of like in, like intense literary journals about <laughs> about Candyman for sure. this. So I apologize if I'm just over here pontificating. <laughs> but my English major gets lit up when I start reading through like the mo- like the the idea of the um what is it called the monstrous feminine ideology that is in Candyman. I just, I went a little nuts. Sorry. So let's meet our director and get a move away from this mad rambling of a woman who's clearly needs to be. It's her thesis, okay? She's been awake for days, full of Adderall. Making sure that we I'm know very all of interested. it. Commit her to the loony bin. Um. So Rose, how dare Rose you? was born. I think in- I need to get off. See, this is what I feel bad for. Back in the day, woman's hysteric. Get her off. Nowadays, <laughs> oh, they got to tie her to a bed. Yep. Just there get her off. Just Maybe, get her off. You know, or that's burn a problem. Her like a witch. But either way, yeah, she's do not something. fucking her husband. One or the other. <laughs> so. Bernard Rose was born in London to Jewish parents and began making films on a Super 8 camera when he was just nine years old. He won an amateur film competition hosted by the BBC when he was only 15, which got some of his early work broadcast on British television. Then he worked under Jim Henson on the latest, uh, on the last season of The Muppet Show, as well as Henson's film, The Dark Crystal, as a production assistant, which is a pretty cool early gig to get. He also attended the National Film and Television School. Graduating in 1989 with a master's in filmmaking, then got into directing music videos in the early days of MTV, most notably for the song Relax by Frankie Goes to Hollywood. You know that song, Relax, don't do it. It's a weird video. It's an odd video, to say the least. I did It is. He's a weird dude. And what really uh seduced Clive Barker into saying yes. I know that you've got this little line about his movie The Paper House Ooh. that Bernard Rose directed. It was a I need to see this movie. I now. know, me too. I want to see it. Dude, so even just the little the little blurb on what it's about. 
A lonely and rebellious 11-year-old Anna, angry with her oft-absent father, finds herself increasingly called into her feverish dreams towards the image she drew in her sketchbook, a soul-foreboding house in the vast English countryside with a single occupant, a melancholy boy unable to walk. None of the adults believed her as she comes to realize the violently terrifying figure she senses approaching the imaginary house might affect the real world as well. I want to see mm-hmm. this movie. Hell yeah. And that's what seduced Clive Barker is him yes. seeing this and he's like, oh, Bernard Rose? Yeah, you could do. Yeah, you could do. Oh, fucking okay, yeah. All right. Yeah, cool. Rose said, horror was considered a debased genre in the early 90s, which I totally get it. It had its heyday in a big way in the 80s. Mm -hmm. It kind of hit a peak. And by the early 90s, it was very much looked down upon, and there wasn't a lot of prestige horror out there. And people, uh, going back to Rose's quote, and people were looking for a new direction. I found a story in Clive Barker's Books of Blood collection that I thought had potential. The Forbidden, about a middle-class woman fascinated by a uh, Merseyside housing estate. I knew Clive a little, so he gave me a free option. After the nightmare he had had on Hellraiser, where it was redubbed into American English, I decided to set the film in the U.S., and here we have the tale of just... The weirdest Annoying. Hollywood dumb thing. I kind of want to see the original now without the overdubbing, and that'll be really interesting to go rewatch it and see. D- Jackie, Natalie, do you want to explain what the fuck happened to Hellraiser? I mean, essentially, it's just that. New World Pictures is an American company. They saw what they were making, and they're like, oh, wait, no. Can you make it American instead? <laughs> like set in America too, which is so weird. What if so. it's like? What if he's like surfing? <laughs> or like, what if it's, it's, so, it's so weird. Yeah. Drinking so like they had a to redub, Yeah, the entire movie. Yeah, with, with, with what Eng- a American nightmare. accents. Which I feel like it would have been scarier with British accents. British people are scarier. Also, what the fuck does it matter? Yeah, <laughs> like just leave it. And it doesn't matter. Yeah. And I don't think it would have stopped anyone who loved Hellraiser from like going to see it in the day. Oh, no. wait, never mind. It's British. We got to go see where the subtitles. The Mickey where Mouse the subtitles <laughs> yeah. Also, fun fact uh, about Hellraiser that very famous scene where um, what's his name's being split apart at the end of the movie and he goes, Jesus wept. That was an ad lib by the actor. Hell yeah. It wasn't even in the script. Good for him. Hell yeah. I love that. We'll do Hellraiser. Oh, we'll do Hellraiser. But either way, going back to Candyman, the film was bought by propaganda films, which Rose referred to as, quote, forward thinking, as they had been doing Twin Peaks before that, nice. which is fun. Rose said, I picked Chicago to set it in quite random uh, to set it in quite randomly, simply because it was a place I'd heard of. I asked the Illinois Film Commission where the worst public housing estate in the city was, and they said without pausing, Cabrini Green. And also what's cool is that apparently right after he ended up spending some time there with the Illinois Film Commission after he had picked Chicago. And then he said, I spent some time there and I realized this was an incredible arena for a horror movie because it was a place of such palpable fear. And rule number one when you're making a horror movie is set it somewhere frightening. And the fear of the urban housing project, it seemed to me, was actually totally irrational because you couldn't really be in that much danger. Yes, there was crime there, but people were actually afraid of driving past it. And there was such an aura of fear around the place. And I thought that was really something interesting to look into because it's sort of a kind of fear 
that's at the heart of modern cities. Mm -hmm. And obviously, it's racially motivated. But more than that, it's poverty Mm -hmm. motivated. Sure. I I also think it's easier to put that that label on that to not have to look at people in poverty. I think to be able to avoid dealing with your own feelings about it, you can go like, oh, it's dangerous. Don't go over there. It's dangerous. Well, yeah. Then you also don't have to deal with the murders that happen there. You don't have to deal with, with the, like the mentally ill population that lives there. You don't have to deal with any of it. If you just turn a blind eye, the injustice that happens there 24 seven. Yeah. Which we'll get into with the real true story that some of this is based off of. But also steeped in history, the the site of Cabrini Green before it was built was actually a gas works in the late 19th century. And it was known locally as Little Hell. So this place, whether you believe Sweet. in energies or not, is... One that makes your chest hurt. Even Virginia Madsen, who grew up in Chicago, knew Cabrini Green and was afraid to drive past it and was raised thinking that you don't drive past it. So there was also something that emanated from there. What's a gas works? I'm going to assume it's some sort of big, scary factory. (laughs) Would they make gas? It was originally conceived as a model of civic redevelopment being built in stages on Chicago's near north side starting in the 1940s. It got up to 3,600 public housing units with more than 15,000 people. And when Candyman was released, Chicago held both three of the country's 12 richest communities as well as 10 of the country's 16 poorest poorest census tracts, all of which had large public housing complexes. Um, also, yes, Gasworks is a factory where coal is made into gas yeah. for use oh. as fuel. And oh, that sounds like Hell poison yeah. air, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's scary. Sounds like a terrible yeah. place to... Sure, nobody died during no, this. No, 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 They were more out of sight, out of mind, like we talked about before, whereas Cabrini Green was located in a spot that pushed the poor black community up against a white, rich one with yuppies flocking to high rise neighborhoods in that part of the city to the point where it literally gets I believe it gets torn down eventually. And it is gone now. Fully yes. gentrified. And that's a lot of what the new movie is going to be about, which I'm really fucking yeah, stoked for. That's and exciting. that won't be the last time you hear Again, us you can't talk about you it. You can't just move the the tombstones. You got to move the bodies. You only moved the black people, but you did it. I don't know. What, yeah, uh, but you either didn't way. move all the horrible <laughs> years of crime. Of that oppression that happened there. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Thank Very you interesting, that too, done. that so when Tony Todd went to start the shoot of this he was talking there's so many awesome interviews with tony todd who everything that i read and see and the people that i've talked to that worked with him he is just delightful to work with very professional very chill cool guy and he was talking about how cabrini green was ruled by five different gangs at the time it was real bullshit we said we went on a tour before shooting and it had to be at 8 a.m. because they had their own store in the complex with the thickest plexiglass I'd ever seen. And we had to get our provisions there by 10 a.m. or your life was suspect. There were five different factions there controlling territories which consisted of vertical buildings. You know, it's modern day indentured slavery through the power of crack, mm. which was created by the government. But hell, that's a whole other thing. Because yeah. <laughs> also, I mean, I, I I guess I'll just jump into it real quick. Tony Todd after this becomes a gang 
interventionalist yeah. that goes to create dialogues between gangs. Like this inspired him to start working with gang members to try and talk between gangs after he realized what was going on, especially in the projects. And he even says one of my dream projects is a foundation where teenagers from different backgrounds can be taken someplace every year to get them together and see that there's a different world out there. Talk to them about disparities between culture and classes in the society. And hopefully they come back and spread whatever joy they get. I want that to be my legacy. I love Tony I mean, Todd. for real. And also it's like people forget when they put that label or, you know, they the, gangs call themselves gangs. But when you think about gangs, sometimes they want to put the idea that the, these big scary men are in it but so many people in gangs are fucking kids and they're like early yeah. 20s to protect themselves they, and to protect their family they, they yeah. need nothing but suffering like to have joy in your life is so I mean that's just cool as hell that he does that because it's like Sometimes you just need to find something that makes you smile. <laughs> like he's, he says he's used it as an introductory tool in gang intervention work, uh, opening with what frightens you? What horrible things have you experienced? Yeah. Yeah. To actually talk to people. And that's what they do. So they get to to get permission to shoot in Cabrini Green. They agreed to cast some of the residents as extras. And since the area was entirely controlled by rival gangs at the time, Tony Todd said they had to be paid by the film company to not interfere with the production. But it makes so much sense. Bring some money into Like, if you're going to use them as a way for this white woman to, like, like, like they're stared at like they're in a fishbowl, at least give them some fucking money for their time. For sure. They, they shoot for just one week, by the way, in Cabrini Green to get the wide shots and exteriors. The rest is all done on a set in Los Angeles. And by the way, shout out to that set mm -hmm. designer because I thought that was all shot on location. It, it, those sets are incredible. The, the, the dilapidated interiors. Job. Well, they're very, they're very like sadly beautiful. They're yes. mournful, yes. but like so pretty. Like the painting is just so yeah. cool. Yes. Which by the way, that whole face uh, as an opening, uh, it's more of a doorway in the mm -hmm. original but that is all in there. Even the description of the way it looks, where, where it looks like he, his head is tilted up. So you see the nose and then the eyes directly above it. I used to have nightmares about that. <laughs> I had nightmares. I, I always remember that that a that a doorway would open up like in Beetlejuice yeah, yeah. with like the bit like big crazy um, like cartoonish features, but then with the Candyman over Whoa. it. Ugh. <laughs> Rose said they wouldn't let us go there at first without a police escort. The social divide was really extreme compared to anything in a Liverpool housing estate. But despite its rep reputation, most people there were just getting on with their lives. The fear people had of walking around there was the very essence of racism. Yeah. It is ultimately based on the fear of the other or the unknown, which definitely this yeah. film explores. You already mentioned, Jackie, about the NAACP. They were concerned about having a black man as the fearful monster. Rose had this to say, I totally agree. I argued that a very strange thing happens in horror movies. People actually sort of identify with the boogeyman. It's him they dress up as, not the victim. And Candyman is almost an avenging angel. Tony Todd had such a wonderful handle on him as a tragic hero, a character with more in common with Dracula mm -hmm. than Freddy Krueger. Yes. Um, that's, what he, that's what Clive Barker went on further to say, that it's a lot more like an Edgar Allan Poe sense. It's the romance of death. 
He's a ghost, and he's also the resurrection of something that is kind of unspoken or unspeakable in American history, which is slavery as well. So he's kind of come back, and he's haunting what is the new version of the racial segregation in Chicago. Uh, yeah, he's he's pretty he's goth. Would he, I would go so far as to say, Jackie, he's a goth daddy. Oh yeah, I am. The talk about uh, I may I probably shouldn't, but you <laughs> know what? Right, here he we looks go. great. He, I love his, I love his coat, which we will get into. I love mm-hmm. his style. I love his voice. How could you not give me a kiss? Make me immortal. <gasps> give me a bees. Oh, I'll just be just like Evanescence. Unfortunately, Tony Todd was born with a rare birth defect. He was born with instead of a penis, he was born with the claw of a cat. Wow. Ooh, so yeah, you cannot have sex with claw. him. Yeah, one it's like a twilight. Just one big cat paw claw. But either way, Rose said, I tried to listen to the black actors and not fall into the Hollywood trap of imposing racial stereotypes and to take people and to make people rounded characters, not ciphers or caricatures. Just to restate that as we move away from the racism elements of this and into, do you guys want to hear a scary story? Yeah. Okay, this is a real true scary story, though, so it's not actually like a fun ghost story. It's actually really sad. No, it's very upsetting. Here is the true story for inspiration. And again, honestly, like just this will return us to the racism issues. I mean, it is so disgusting how this whole thing went down. Let's get into it. On the near west side of Chicago, so not Cabrini Green, which I believe is near north side. Uh, there was a public housing development called the Grace Abbott Homes, where a 52-year-old woman named Ruth May McCoy resided. On April 22nd, 1987, someone entered her 11th floor apartment through her bathroom cabinet around 9 p.m. at night and murdered her. So we need to do a quick, because I don't even think that we've said this yet. So, you know, obviously he comes in through the bathroom mirror in the movie. That is a real way real. that the projects were created an architectural structure is that they can get in that people can get in through your medicine cabinet but also through there you can get into the walls of the building as well terrifying terrifying and and, and, and truly terrifying this wasn't like a quick like he just slipped right in and did it no at 8 45 she this is the scariest part to me she calls 911 and she to report an intruder to say hey someone is coming through my bathroom mirror like i'm watching it go down right now and the operator disregarded her as she was a bit unintelligible because she's freaking out and noted that the call was a, quote, disturbance with a neighbor. But police were finally dispatched after other calls 911 reporting screams and gunshots, uh, which is, uh, again, so horrifying. The police then get there and after knocking on the door, they get no response. They end up trying to use a key given to them by an attendant in the housing office, but they left after the key didn't work. He's left. They left. So, all right. I read this article. If you want to read like the deep, the crazy details about this, it's called They Came In Through the Bathroom Mirror by Stephen Bogira in the Chicago Reader in 1987. And they, it, what is so ridiculous is that after they felt that they did a fine job after knocking on the door and not going in, that there were ap- there was absolutely no further investigation afterwards. They're like, no, we did our job. We knocked. Nobody came. So, I mean, it's not really our fault that we didn't go in and investigate, yeah, right? Totally <laughs> crazy. And then Because they're in the projects. And nothing and probably nothing would have happened for weeks if it wasn't for another neighbor of this victim calling 911 again being like, "Hey, 
I have not seen this person. I'm like really worried about them, especially after the screams and gunshots that came yeah. from the apartment uh, the other night. And the police went back to the apartment. They get no response again, wouldn't you know, because the fuck the person's dead. And then finally, the day after that, the housing, the day after that, the housing development security guards drilled the lock on the door to get in. And McCoy, of course, is found lying on her bedroom floor, shot four times. There were two men aged 18 and 21 who were charged with the murder. They saw them carrying uh, like TVs and stuff from her apartment out in the courtyard, um, like super late at night. They were charged, but the charges were dropped after two years of the trial. Probably didn't have enough evidence or whatever. And then this article that apparently these cabinets were only secured by six yeah. nails. In wow. some areas, areas of the building, you can even climb vertically in the pipe chase to an apartment above or below the one you start in. It's the way to go from one apartment to the next, even if you're not killing nobody, the janitor said. Uh. Uh, if you're just peeping, maybe you're just uh. giving a little look, you know? Um, truly, truly scary. And the, the name The Candyman... Also, talk about another inspiration came from the Candyman Killer. And the Candyman Killer, his name is Dean Coral. Oh, yeah. He kidnapped, tortured, and murdered at least 28 young boys between the years 1970 and 1973. And he earned his sweet nickname from the fact that his family owned a candy factory. And he was known for passing out sweets to kids in the Heights, where his family had the candy factory. You can uh, listen to a little podcast called Last Podcast on the Left, who does a <laughs> series about him. There it is. But either way, let's move from reality to, I guess, more reality, actually. I want to talk about the cast, which are real. <laughs> um, but either way, Virginia Madsen, let's talk about her. She plays Helen Lyle, of course, the lead. Her mother is an Emmy award-winning filmmaker and author. Her father, a sexy firefighter. And her brother is the actor Michael Madsen, who you might know from like a bunch of Quentin yep. Tarantino movies. I do know him. He's great. And uh, either way, she grew up in Chicago and there attended acting schools as she wanted to be an actor from a very early age. One of her first big roles to mention David Lynch for the third time I mean, in this episode. What? Her big, one of her early big roles was Princess Irulan in David Lynch's yep. Dune. So there you go. Weirdly, Lynch is just like all over this episode for some reason. He just gets his creepy tendrils on it. Inter it makes sense. Clive Barker makes weird shit. Yeah, so I mean, they're David very, Lynch. they're both very like ethereal and and I don't know. They they just have similar styles in certain ways. Makes sense. Yeah, similar vibes. I get it, and similar mm -hmm. time period too for like heyday, but. Either Either way, she was actually friends with Bernard Rose uh, himself and his wife, Alexandra Pig. And it was Pig that was originally to play the role. It's a very unfortunate last name. It's an unfortunate last name. I'm very happy that my last name is not Zapigsy <laughs> because I don't think I would be, I don't think I'd be alive. I think no I'd be, one I would. think I'd have to be dead. That's a, your name does mean zebra, which is interesting. It's a different animal. <laughs> oh, really? That's oh, fun. it's a different kind of pig. That's why she's got all the stripes on her. But either yeah, way, striped um, pig. That's what we call zebras in this house. Pig was originally to play the role of Helen with Madsen as the best friend. But then they decided, and I think smartly so, to make cast the friend as African-American. So uh, but then and then 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 right before they were about to shoot, Alexander Pig got pregnant Gross. sick like a big Ew. old pig. <laughs> pig. <laughs> <laughs> Just before the shooting last started. Name. Can you imagine? <laughs> I would I would change my last name so fast. The second I was able to. Uh ma'am, are you pregnant? No, it's just 
My last no, name just is Pig. Pig. Uh, <laughs> but either way, no, she did get pregnant. And um, so Helen was uh, offered the or, or Madsen rather was offered the role of Helen. They we already said the Eddie Murphy thing. I'm so glad they weren't able to afford them. So that's where we get to Tony Todd as the candy man who grew but up. I will and, say, though, about Virginia Madsen, please. She's very open with the fact that she is not your typical final girl. Uh, this is another thing that, of course, you know, before this, there's Alien, there's Halloween, but she is older than both of them and not your typical final girl. And what I love is Virginia Madsen said, most horror films just go for the gross out and always combine sex and violence. As soon as someone's getting it on, their head is chopped yeah, off. Yes, so it's biblical most of the time. Mm-hmm. Yes, because but Bernard immediately takes out that scene of getting punished mm-hmm. for your sins, which is so exploitative of women. It really is. The fact that this seduction has nothing to do with mm-hmm. guilt. It's not the guilt right. of being a... And like even, which I never thought about too, we were talking about the fact that when she shows her breasts in the Virginia Madsen, it's never in a like, oh, my titties are popping out. It is in very uncomfortable, upsetting scenes. Like in the scene when she's shooken and she just gets out on bail and she's like washing herself and she knows that her husband is yeah. cheating on her. And the like, it, of course, the 12 year old in me goes like, today, well, sure, today, hey. because I do that every time there are breasts on the screen, because, again, I am a child. But it is in such a tasteful way that's not just being like, you see that tip? Oh. Well, right, it's not her being a quote unquote slut. No, at right. all. And it's not, and she's not being, and and, and she's and not in fact, even. She being gets punished. fucked over, you know. Right. I mean, she gets cheated on with the young, hot girl. You know what I mean? Oh, God, I mean that girl was such sure. a dumb bitch. When I put on Candyman, at first I was just like, "Ew, yuck! Who Gross. is this old? Ugh. Why is this old. old on the screen?" You know what I mean? <laughs> Where is the youth? Where I feast yes. on the youth? But then I was Same. like, wow, she's really killing this. So. <laughs> Everybody you know what? Said, I can deal with her oldness. <laughs> yeah, you know? I'll look past Ugh, guess. the cracks on her skin <laughs> and enjoy the film. Uh, but either way. <laughs> also, Sandra Bullock was almost Virginia Madsen's role as well. But she yes. turned it down. She did speak. I think instead. actually she would have. She would have actually probably also killed it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but I really love Virginia Madsen in this movie. She's fantastic. Yes. Agreed. Um, But either way, definitely, definitely Sandra Bullock better than Eddie Murphy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Can you imagine? Uh, But either way, Tony Todd um, grew up in Hartford, Connecticut. He went on to study at the Eugene O'Neill National Actors Theater Institute and the Trinity Repertory Company in Providence, Rhode Island. So in other words, just a legit as fuck actor. He uh, Mm. has acted on and off Broadway on tons of TV shows, including several characters in the Star Trek universe. He's appeared, I think we mentioned this before, in over 100 theatrical and television films, which includes Platoon, Night of the Living Dead, The Crow, The Final Destination series, Todd stated at one point that he, quote, always wanted to find my own personal Phantom of the Opera and even came up, as we mentioned, that backstory, which is very Phantom of the Opera-esque, I will definitely say, a tragic backstory. Todd also uh, said, I'm also a blues musician, and all blues artists can trace their uh, pain to the slavery fields of the Mississippi Delta. Anyone who's a fan of jazz and blues can hear that howl. I consider this film a direct descendant of that. I knew I wasn't going to create a caricature and that I wanted to root the character deep in the history of slavery in America. What I do love as well is that, so 
Tony Todd's like hit most of his stuff, all of his stuff was shot in LA, but he did go out to Chicago to obviously see Cabrini Green to get the feel for it. And so he went out drinking with Bernard Rose to show him around to some of the the blues venues in Chicago and all of his favorites. And he said, see, Bernard Rose is a genius. We bonded over blues and beer. I took him to this great place in Chicago called the Kingston Mines with my good friend Frank Pellegrino from Goodfellas. He says, we're drinking. (laughs) Bernard is standing there twisting his hair like a maniacal madman. And he tells me, this movie is going to change your life. And I was like, (laughs) dude, easy. You want a shot of tequila? (laughs) I love Tony Todd. (laughs) I love him. He's the coolest man. I I just... And he's so, I know we've said it before, but man, is he not just an absolute force mm-hmm. in this film. I mean, Dude. I can't imagine this movie being successful without his incredible, like, stoic, yeah. terrifying that's, performance. That's really, like, totally so good. accurate. Like, when you're saying stoic, he is a force, but it's not like the way I would probably be a force by just screaming and screaming. Yeah. He's, yeah. <laughs> like, always, he does none of that. It's literally screaming. just like. You're now mine. You're now my thing. And I'm going to take you. And it's like so which is, again, going back to that one comment from, I believe, Rose. It is kind of more like a Dracula Mm -hmm. than a sweets for the sweet, baby. I want sweets. I want sweets, sweets. by the way. That is a line from Hamlet. Yeah, dog. <laughs> and I also, I, while we're talking about cast real quick, I did meet Dewan Guy. And Dewan Guy plays the little boy in Candyman. What about the I, other guy? I mean, this is, you know, it's difficult to not make the joke. Um, but, the, oh, you're Dewan guy. Oh, boy. <laughs> I, he was very, very sweet. You love it. And it was very funny because he was, uh, he asked why Jeff, because I was with Jeff and he was selling his horror artwork. And he asked why he didn't have a Candyman piece. And we didn't know who he was because he's an adult. And then he just kept saying the lines from the movie at us. And we're like, hell yeah, man. Yeah, we don't have it. Yeah, dude. And he's like, you want a picture? I'm like, sure. Yeah. So we took a picture of him. And then he told us who he was. And we're like, oh, that's awesome. That makes a lot more sense. We thought you just wanted to take a picture with us. But sweet, just the sweetest. And also, he's, as a little kid actor, Great. He's great in that movie. Okay. Killed it. Better off dead. Killed it. And it's <laughs> one of the scarier things is seeing that boy sitting in that hallway alone with no parental supervision in this very f- dangerous feeling place is like one of the more, I feel like, scary realities that one he's faces. very vulnerable, yeah. Yes. He's here. Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joe's, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
But either way, Cassie Lemons, I will say, I don't really have a lot on the rest of the cast. They're, they're kind of in the kind of more in the background. But Cassie Lemons, who plays Helen's friend Bernadette, she went on to become a very successful director in her own right. She ended up uh, directing that recent biopic Harriet in 2019, which is highly yeah. acclaimed. Um, and also Bernard Rose shows up in the movie in that dinner scene with the academics as a university researcher named Archie. Oh, <laughs> Archie. What I love when I give factoids to my co-hosts is when they stare, stare at me in silence. <laughs> and go, wow. <laughs> now I know how Jackie feels when she does the list. Yes, um, so then you guys just <laughs> look at me with glazed over, and I'm like, are you listening? I've got things to say. Uh, let's talk about Candyman's look for a second, because I do feel that it's quite iconic, and I just oh, want that dude. coat so bad. I got some, some of this stuff kind of blew my mind a little bit. I've never thought about what Candyman wore. Ever. Right. But it is so cool. Like his look yes. is so cool. Anna. And it's very, it is, it is all chosen mm-hmm. for a reason. Mm-hmm. And you feel like you, as soon as you see him in the movie, you're like, oh, this dude's from like otherworldly, like compared to everyone else's fashion, everyone else's basic sensibilities. You're like, oh, this guy comes from like another world. Uh, yeah, and dude. Todd wanted this look to be a quote, primeval boogeyman. But without overacting too much, which was a tricky balance for him to find. And the look, I feel like, had to be the same kind of thing. Well, that was the thing. It's very difficult. So his costume designer is Leonard Pollock. Very difficult, especially because Tony Todd is 6'5", to put something on him that doesn't look Mm -hmm. like a costume. That's something that, like, this character would actually wear. That they wanted to give him a sense of royalty. Because if you think about it, in his backstory in the movie... He was the son of a slave, but the slave his but his family got rich because they had dis- created a device to mass produce shoes after the Civil War. So this is a this is an elevated person that came from a not elevated background. But also what I never fucking thought about is how why they zero in on his shoes and how cool his shoes are is because his father was a cobbler, so of course he would That's have awesome. the best crafted shoes available for him. Doesn't that make so much sense? I was like, God damn it. This movie's so good. I love it. He also worked with Bob Keen on his look. Uh, Bob Keen had done makeup for Hellraiser as well and did special effect type stuff as well. Keen originally had him try out a fake mechanical right arm, but the movements were too clunky and it just didn't quite work with the look. So then he ran off. And created that awesome, terrifying so upsetting. hook band, which, <laughs> yeah. yeah, really And it well was, the, yeah, they wanted to make it period enough, but also contemporary since it was modern day. And then that's what, like, they got really pissed off because they think it was Roger Ebert that called it a pimp coat. Ew. And they're like, fuck you. Ebert that says is some not, really questionable he stuff, He says man. some fucking bullshit, yeah. dude. I, well, it really whatever, is, he's dead. Well, you know, I'm sorry. R.I.P., <laughs> but still, it's not no. a pimp coat. If anything, of all the things with this movie, isn't that a racist yeah. bullshit thing to uh, say? Yeah. He at least <laughs> did. I believe he praised the movie, at least. I think he did. He did, did. It a he very did like the movie. Yeah, he just yeah. called it a pimp I coat. I mean, from a place of complete condescension. Yeah. <laughs> Um, anything else about the look before we talk about bees? I th- I think that it's um really smart they went with a it is a very royal and like a fancy outfit, but it's very subdued. The colors yeah. 
aren't bright because like you said on his frame it could look like a costume really easily and that right. it it held that sense of royalty without being over overly in your face about it yeah Classy. i want to climb that sticky sticky oh, man right cat's paw <laughs> No, oh, he doesn't. He has a penis. a penis. Now can we talk about bees? Bees! <laughs> Rose said, I was watching Johnny Carson's show when it featured a professor of entomology, Norman Gary, who had an act where he would play the clarinet covered in bees. He had synthesized queen bee pheromone and would how cover himself in it. How do you get into that? How, is, how do you find that as your gig? It's like, I know that it's like, oh, over time, now we're podcasters because we just kept doing it. But like, where did that start? Like, oh, I was, well, you know, I was out there on my fife and I just, you know, some bees started coming on me and I'm playing my fife. Maybe he was playing the fife yeah. so much, so deeply that he didn't notice he was walking into a beehive and the bees just came. Also, probably just... He's probably, or he's just a bee guy who has like a honey business and he's like getting bored and trying stuff out. You know what I mean? He's like a bee guy with my honey business. (laughs) He was like, I wonder if I could have sex with these bees. So he covered it, his penis. I mean, it is a little sexual. It's a little like phallic. For sure. And pheromones, his pheromones, they're they're on his body because they want that good. They want that good. I get it. I get it. Ooh, they want that fucking dirty good. Uh. (laughs) It is (laughs) <laughs> Back to the bees. Uh, either way, uh, uh, so he got this pheromone and would cover himself in it so they wouldn't sting. This is Rose talking again. Immediately, I knew this was how we would do the scenes where the bees engulf Candyman and Helen. And actually, this guy was the bee guy in Hollywood. He did a movie called The Deadly Bees. He did a little movie called My Girl. Oh, he can't see no. without his glasses. No. And uh, fried green tomatoes as oh. well. He's that guy that does the bee stuff. He's and the bees. So, so he pulls Gary in, uh, and soon Gary is breeding immature bees in hives on the roof of the L.A. studio. Immature bees don't have any venom, and according to Rose, quote, after every shot, he would vacuum them up into a little soft pouch and take them back to their dressing room, which I guess was the roof. They used over 200,000 honeybees, and the crew had to wear protective suits on set, and still, every single one of them got, got I stung. love, and still, everybody got <laughs> well, you stung. Of I, I'm assuming they couldn't kill them for, like, maybe in the 90s they could just kill a bunch of bees, but you can't do that now. Yeah, they probably set them on fire. But, yeah, I would say that without the venom... A bee sting is going to be a lot less shitty, though. I mean, if you haven't been this stung by a bee, Lexi got stung on her hand by a bee at like, uh, it was so sad because it was a big family gathering in Jacksonville. She was like in such a good mood and it ruined her day. She was like crying about it hours later. So getting that venom out of there is is nice. But um, uh, still, uh, Tony Todd uh, had to had went through it with these bees. He had a dental dam in his mouth to keep the bees from going down his throat. Rose commented that he was, quote, very courageous. It took a half an hour just to get all the bees into his mouth. He said he went into like a trance when he opened his mouth and they all flew out. He was like, and also Todd said, I negotiated a bonus of $1,000 for every sting during the bee scene. And I got so smart. I got 23 times. times. I love it. He got paid $1,000 for bee sting. I'd be like, oh, man. More bees, get on me. Yeah, punching them and stuff, getting yeah. the fights with them. You know, insulting their families, yeah, insulting yeah, yeah. their queen. <laughs> Your queen sucks. 
Your queen sucks. <laughs> uh, everything, he, but I love this quote from him. Everything that's worth making has to involve some sort of pain. Once I realized it was an important part of who Candyman was, I embraced it. It was like putting on a beautiful coat. I love you, what Tony Todd. I also I love you. I read that uh, Madsen was highly allergic to bees, which oh, seems dude. like a problem to be cast in this. When she was offered the role, she said, I can't, I'm allergic to bees. And then Bernard Rose said, no, you're not allergic to bees, you're just afraid. Wow, she was gaslit? <laughs> she yeah. said, I had to go to UCLA and get tested because he didn't believe me. I was tested for every kind of venom. I was far more allergic to wasps. So he said, we'll just have paramedics there. You'll be fine. Wow. You know, actors will do anything for a paycheck. So fine, I'll be covered with bees. This is just, I think it's very funny. And I think that we come across this often. Where people always think it's like, oh, actors, cause such cushy jobs. Oh, they make so much money for what they do. This woman, to get a paycheck, because I get it. We've all been totally. there. And I will continue to forever be there. The things we do for money. And then she's like, well, I need this job. So let's hope I don't get stung. <laughs> like, that's horrifying. Terrifying. She had 500 bees on her. And uh, they had to be super careful only to use... Freshly hatched, non-stinging, and non-flying bees, as Madsen was super allergic to bee stings, like you just mentioned. So they yes, had to and they had to like use a infants. tiny bee vacuum that wouldn't harm the bees to get the bees <laughs> off of them. So after they would do the scenes, it That's would take so at least 45 minutes to get the bees off. So you are talking hours at this point of having bees on you. And she said it was like they're all covered in fur. So it was like little Q-tips all over your body. <laughs> That's cute. It's um, cute, I'm glad but that, also it's I'm bees. glad that in the 90s, I, I wouldn't have been surprised if they were just like, get dump these bees off, get some new bees, throw them in the <laughs> yes. trash. I'm glad yeah. that they at least had some regulations for it. Yeah, they tried. I hope they better be abused bees. I only want yeah. abused bees on my set. Horrible I'm sorry, would that, that make them abused? Oh my God, Jackie, that's horrific. She's the funniest woman alive. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I like that, Natalie, you mentioned the whole like how he's super stoic and how powerful that was. And that actually, a lot of that came out of Rose Bernard Rose's like least favorite thing about horror movies is that screaming noise. He's he hated that noise. Yeah, he'd hate this and, podcast. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and so another thing he did in order to avoid that with his heroine is he had um he had actually uh, Virginia Madsen hypnotized in those scenes. Uh, where she confronts the Candyman. It took about 10 minutes. It was done by a professional hypnotist, but R Rose himself had th this key word that he would say to her right before they would roll, right before they would um, call action, that would put her into this trance-like state. It was Madsden. Yes. It was just her last name. And I was like, how did she, How did that oh, work? Oh, that was just her last name? It was her last name. Her last name That's was That's a terrible keyword. Key <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, at, the, at the DMV, she's just like drooling like, for her picture. <laughs> I think it was... But she does say that like she was legitimately hypnotized. Yeah. And what's so cool is that looking at her eye, like how do you not focus like that? Like if you, because of course, I'm, then I'm really looking. I was like, I want to see if I can see a difference in those scenes. And that glassy eyed look, I don't know if you could do it 
any other way. Like to have her just not respond at all, and then with a single tear makes mm-hmm. it so fucking effective. Even yeah, and I mean it's brilliant directing too. And it, that very first scene when she sees the Candyman in the parking garage, there's no fear reaction. She's immediately he's he's calling to her, and she's going like, "I can't go. I have to be somewhere." Like immediately, just under the spell. Make me immortal. Also, I will say Tony Todd did sing about the hypnosis in his song "Cat Claw Penis," as of course he's a blues musician. Cat Claw Penis. Ouch! 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 with my cat claw penis. I don't think that that's blues at all. I think you just made somebody else have the blues, though. He's definitely depressing. Cat Claw Rock. Cock Rock. There. Either way, none of that was made up. But what was made up and uh, wonderfully done, always love to hear this, uh, even if it is for budget reasons, Rose wanted traditional effects and hired uh, Martin Bresson for the job, who did effects on films such as Waterworld. He did visual effects for The Abyss. Of course, that had a lot of like uh, hocus pocus in there and mm-hmm. Escape from L.A. And uh, really got all all that stuff was like so real. I mean, we just talked about the bees. The crew uh, who did the fire effects for the film Backdraft, the firefighter movie that Jaggy's probably rubbed a bean or two off to. Oh, at least three beans. uh, And uh, designed, (laughs) they designed the set for that awesome bonfire scene in Candyman. They used 1,500 gallons of propane for the look. The fire got up to 70 feet wide and 30 feet high. That's terrifying. Very scary. Yes. Very, very scary. Awesome. It's like Burning Man. So very cool. If we don't have much more about I'm the practical sorry, effects. I'm sorry, Burning Woman, right, right, guys? Right? Man, either I'm way, killing it. Did, she did burn alive at the end of that. Yeah, uh, but did. either way, uh, if you don't have anything else about the practical effects, I think Jackie's going to take us a little walk down score lane uh, done Dude. by the amazing Philip Glass. Mm-hmm. And as we know, the score for Candyman is almost as remembered as Candyman itself. It is like Helen's theme in it is the kind of thing that like I would just think about randomly. And the fact that it just it is such a Philip Glass does such an amazing job in this movie. But if you know anything about Philip Glass, you know that Philip Glass sees himself as an artist. Oh, yeah. And you're right. He is an artist. He is. But he's definitely above the idea of making music for just a low-budget slasher flick. So when Philip Glass was asked to produce the score of the film, he agreed because he wanted to create a gothic score with pipe organs. But he hated the final version of the movie. He felt that he was lied to by Bernard Rose and manipulated into thinking it was an independent project with, quote, integrity. He said, the story that we learned afterwards makes a lot of sense. So Bernard Rose wanted to make the movie with more social commentary on the boogeyman than it actually obviously came out with. It is still there, but it's not as important as Bernard Rose originally wanted. But uh, he wanted African-Americans living in the projects of which white people like Virginia Madsen's character, Helen, are terribly afraid. That was that was the project that Philip Glass signed up for. And he was so mad about the that the final product that he refused to release the soundtrack. He didn't want them selling the soundtrack. He he was very it is his least favorite project. He was embarrassed by it in 2001. So this is nine years later. 
a friend of Philip Glass's, Don Christensen, they were in a meeting one day, and he pointed out to Glass how the music for Candyman was a hot commodity on the bootleg market and that he should really consider releasing it. And Glass at the time had a record deal with a company that definitely did not want to identify itself with a horror movie soundtrack. So Philip Glass told Christensen, go ahead, put it out. If you want to put it out, you put it out. So his friend created Orange Mountain Music, a record label, able to release archive items like the score to Candyman. And Candyman was the label's first release. So he did it just because people wanted the soundtrack so badly. And Philip Glass then made no money off of the selling of the soundtrack later on. And this dude did. And it's amazing because now Philip Glass has gone out to say... It has become a classic, so I still make money yeah. from that score. Get checks every year. Yeah, and that's all he says about it. Doesn't yeah. say anything about the movie, about. but that's what he says about it. He's amazing, though. I he, do love he did, he did scores for films like Koyana Skatsi, uh, which is a big classic, which is like largely uh, the score is such a huge, important part of that short art film. And then, uh, and then the hours, the which hours is one of my favorite so scores. So good. Oh my god, I love the hours. I love, I love it. the hours. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that's the deal with the score. Kind of hilarious, and just goes to show how much shit horror the genre still gets, but was so getting back then. Because I consider this to be more on the prestige side of the horror genre, absolutely, than a Very cheap much slasher so. fil- flick. Like, and also Bernice, uh, yeah. Bernice, <laughs> Bernard Rose. <laughs> that's his alter ego. Yeah, Oof, when he I shows up, so sometimes on set is Bernice. Don't talk to uh, Bernard when he's Bernice because he just lashes out. I'd be I scared. think that that is fun and I like it. Um, he also <laughs> directed one of my favorite sad romance movies, Immortal Beloved, which I definitely Ooh. recommend. It's Very about cool. Beethoven. Yeah, duh. Okay. Scary I haven't heard of that. Oh, it's great. Awesome. Oh, yeah. You Whoa, guys should totally great. watch that movie, you and Lexi. Yeah. yeah. I'm down. It's great. I loved this. So, yeah, for sure. Uh, but yeah, the movie comes out on October 16th, 1992. It does pretty well for itself in the box office. It's pretty well I received by critics. I mean, on a budget critics. of $6 million, it made $25 million, which for a horror movie in 92, yeah. it's really not bad. Solid. Rose said the film was successful, but not super successful. It was never in anyone's best of lists in the 90s, but it's grown over the years, and now it's talked about as a precursor to what Jordan Peele and other black filmmakers are doing. I never set out to make some great social statement, though. Confronted with the reality of what was there, it just came into the film and made it a lot better and of course we get jordan peele we're going to talk about that in just a second uh now if even virginia madsen says most people recognize me from Candyman more than anything i've ever done she says it means a lot to me it was after years of struggling as an actor you always want a film that's annual like it's a wonderful life right. or christmas story i just love that i have a halloween movie now it's kind of a legend this story people have watched it since they were kids and every halloween it's on and they watch it now with their kids that means a lot to me the place i get recognized the most is the airport security for some reason every person in airport security has seen Candyman. maybe it makes them a little afraid of me <laughs> amazing um, so, well, I just want to briefly touch on the sequels because they do exist. I literally hit up Jaggy was like, are these at all worth watching? And she said, no. So if you're a sequel defender, please email Jackie, <laughs> DM her on Instagram. She does no, not read know, those messages anymore, but do you it. You know what makes me upset is that I want to <laughs> see. So originally, so Bernard Rose, like as he was making this immediately 
get picked up to write the sequel, right? And if the original story wanted to do for the sequel, I would have, which also was supposed to be called Candyman 2, The Midnight Meat Train. And it was supposed to follow Jack the Ripper instead. Whereas the first Candyman was about race. The idea was to make the second Candyman about gender. It was about to be the idea of this faceless, brutal killer who only attacked women in a horrific sexual manner and whose primary objective was to stop whores right. is a weird moralistic take to it. So the pra- protagonist of the film was actually a British policewoman who starts to investigate the murders. That's cool. And of course, as in all Ripper stories, the moment she starts to uncover all of the theories, these Masonic influences in the British police force coalesce to stop her. So far, so much like every other Ripper thing you've read, right? But you start to realize that she's getting more and more isolated from her policeman husband. And in the same way as Candyman's Helen, she was being more gaslit by all the people around her. Mm -hmm. And the closer she got to the heart of the mystery, the more layers of strangeness floated around her. And then it became a weird procedural. And that's the movie I want to see. Yeah, I would love to see that movie. And it just seems like that would have been such the smart call that taps into what made this movie a fascinating horror film to begin with and unique. And instead, they it seems like to me and Jackie, you you saw them. I didn't really. But it seems like they stripped all the interesting stuff and just leaned on any of the little elements that made it like a rote slasher horror film right like that's kind of what it was like oh it's like arbitrary setting and we're gonna focus on just the fact that this guy is always haunting these people and and killing them so cool about Candyman is you watch halloween you watch freddy krueger and it is the it is the quote-unquote monster going after people the entire time this is one of those movies where it's like oh you think that that's what the movie's gonna be and then it blows all of your you're thinking out of the fucking water and that's why Candyman is so fucking good so for you to go back to the the regular horror laurels that's not what we wanted with this franchise and that's why a lot of people trash sequels and and claim that they're money grabs because they take they they pick yeah (laughs) because they pick out the things they think are what made the movie good or what made the movie what people want to see yeah Yeah, yeah. and then just like completely put no heart or or thought into it they're just like all right this guy's got the hook he's got the hook he's mad right it's it's in a city yeah get that bitch and they even got tony todd for i believe both of these right and um the first was Candyman: farewell to the flesh it came out in 1995 directed by bill condon who actually did he did chicago dream girls and jackie you'll love this he did the twilight breaking dawn uh one and two which I believe what? are considered My horrible. Movies? I believe they're considered terrible, right? Aren't those uh, bad they ones? They are, but you they're still great. <laughs> they're like, still they're great. They're terrible though. to watch, but fun. But fun at least. But either way, uh, the film follows a New Orleans school teacher who finds herself targeted by the Candyman. The second was Candyman Day of the Dead. It was directed by Turi Meyer, who directed episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer TV show. And it centers around the eve of Day of the Dead, during which he haunts a Los Angeles art gallery owner. But either way, again, it's just like didn't spend much time. And by the way, the art gallery owner, the the the, the scream queen is Donna Dierico, who I remember from just Jay offing to her on from Baywatch. She's not a good actress. Whoa! <laughs> just gonna throw it out there. So it's just like if that's it's it, the opposite of what they did in the yeah, first one. It's of what made the first the one so good. It's like a hot girl. It's just so annoying. But either way, let's talk about what's awesome and exciting about this franchise with the Jordan Peele sequel. Yeah, Jordan Peele. 
was announced to be in talks to produce a sequel back in 2018 and will be more racially charged with the plot centering around a now gentrified Cabrini Green. Tony Todd totally was super cool, like on Twitter about it. He had heard someone else had already been cast as it was literally like, I have been in love with it, playing this character for the past like 20 years, but I also understand how Hollywood works and I just I congratulate them for the movie they're going to make. I know it's going to be great. Like, he was so gracious and cool. And then it's so cool that they totally were like, nah, brah, you the Candyman still. And I love yeah, that, Yeah, dude, just like, I feel like it was like more like, oh, we just assumed you were going to do it. <laughs> well, <laughs> oh, it's no, weird. You, it's Candyman. Totally, but it's such a weird Hollywood thing where he heard about it online. Yeah. That, I Assume hear that about all these remakes that people from the cast are like, I didn't know I was doing this until right. the internet told me I was. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. The creator of Jim, the creator, when we did that, we did that for Wizard of the Bruise, the creator of Jim found out about the shitty remake that Scooter Braun made, by the way, asshole Ugh. of Ew. from Taylor Swift fame um, and totally destroyed her work and what was cool about her work. And she found out about it. In a tweet that All it was right, no more Taylor Swift today. All right, but she's a miracle. She's a miracle. But either way, um, uh, going the opposite of Taylor Swift, probably this film. Um, you do have Tony Todd, directed by Nia DaCosta, who wrote the screenplay with Jordan Peele and Wynn Rosenfeld. Doesn't have a ton of credits, but did a short film that was apparently so well regarded by Jordan Peele that he brought her in to do this. Now, I have the premise from Universal. It's a big old paragraph. You want me to read this out? No, I mean, essentially, it's just going to be a it's a continuation of the story about the baby that survived, who is grown up, that goes back to Cabrini Green. That's honestly, that's all I want to know about it. Yeah. That sounds fucking sick as shit. If you haven't watched the trailer with the beautiful animation and the um, like the what's oh, that called? Be so good. The pup, like the shadow puppet things. Have you watched that trailer? It is. Yeah. Beautiful. I, I'm so excited. You gotta check it out. I get why they pushed back the release till next year, but I will say I was like counting down the days to see. I want to see Candyman, so I want to see the new one so badly. Um, I'm just so excited that we finally got to get to to talk about my favorite horror movie. It it's just it holds and the, up. The other element I love that they're gonna play into is, of course, like. He moves back to Cabrini Green, but now it's this luxurious loft condo. Of course. And fully gentrified by, like, annoying as fuck millennials. And I think that's going to be amazing for a horror story and for Uh, especially the type of, you know, get out style, like, horror storytelling that just, it makes me so excited to see. I just want to see some, I just hope they're really annoying millennials and I hope they get killed really, really hard. Oh, I'm sure they they will. (laughs) Oh, they will be. They won't believe in the folklore. Katie Man's got to come back. Remind him about what happened in the past. <laughs> um, and I just want to end it on this little, I just like this little paragraph from one of the reviews. I feel like it really just sums up all of this. Candyman is unlike almost any other American horror movie made in the 1990s. It's smart without ever being snarky or ironic. It often feels like highbrow horror without ever losing touch with the genre roots that make it so interesting. Its villain is instantly iconic without ever feeling like he's been dumbed down to fit into a horror mold. So much of Candyman's success rests on the shoulders of Candyman himself. Much of his dialogue is plucked straight from the source, and although originally white in Barker's story, the casting of Tony Todd as Candyman adds hundreds of years of ugly history to an already complex film. Hell yeah. Yeah. I love it. Don't say Candyman. I won't do it. I won't say it into the mirror. I, um, um, no, fuck you that. You know what? No way. Why bring the energy? Nope. 
Why, why do that I? to yourself? Well, I have. Ugh. I live in in a New York apartment with a fucking mirror. Have you uh, checked? Have you th- checked to thing. see if you could take the the medicine chest out yet? I haven't t- checked to see if I could rip it off, but it definitely would look into the apartment next to mine too, which would be you should check. So scary. <laughs> so I'm Holden, definitely not check. messing with that. <laughs> but <laughs> hell don't yeah, don't you want to is- know? This is our uh, episode on the Candyman, and this was super fun, guys. I really enjoyed doing this with the two of you. I think we, uh, I think we nailed it. Oh my god! Yeah, dog. Thank you guys so much. So much. So much applause for us. <laughs> Please, if you'd like to throw wreaths at us when we walk down the street doing our day-to-day activities, we commend you for it. Like a pony, like a show pony. Are you yeah. calling a show ponies right now? Dressage. No, more like. More like a cat claw penis. No, I can't wait to be scratched by you. Uh, He's such way. a blues performer. Thank you guys <laughs> again. This is Candyman. I love you. And um, my name is Jackie Zabrowski. You can follow me on Instagram at Jack That Worm. And yeah, I'll talk about I'll talk about having sex with Tony Todd all day. All right, there you go. Uh, but either way, uh, you can check us out patreon.com forward slash page seven podcast. Check us out. Uh, Jackie and I do a stream every Friday called Jack and Knees on my Twitch channel, twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. I'm Natalie Jean. You can follow me at the Natty Jean and uh, at this show at page 7LPN. We love you guys. We'll be back soon. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye, baby. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone. Plus, spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.